Welcome to the Sunday morning podcast from Kingdom Faith Church in Crawley. This message is by Colin Squires. Um, I want to start this morning just with a, with a story. Uh, for those of you, lots of you I know know my testimony, know my story, but uh, I was raised in an atheist family and, uh, you know, wonderful parents who, who love me and um, that kind of thing, but... I never knew God. In fact, I thought if you wanted to know God, you were a moron. You were an idiot. You were a weak person who needed a crutch. My life, though, if I really admit it, about uh, a month before I turned 17, it was the point where I came to know Jesus. That, at that point in my life was not the happiest. It might have looked on the outside to be so, but um, kind of behind the veneer of my life was, uh, was, was some really soggy MDF. Um, my... <laughs> My life was um, not particularly happy. I would sometimes, so I wasn't even 18 yet. I hadn't bought my first legal pint, but I would sometimes find myself um, sneaking some, some whiskey from my dad's drink cabinet um, to just drink myself to fall asleep, you know, um, at 17 or just 16, 17. Um, I didn't like myself very much. Uh, I had a few friends, but I think most people I rubbed up the wrong way. Um, and, uh, and I looked for other things to fill my time. I love music. I had a, a, a massive music collection. Anyone remember Napster or Kazaa or LimeWire? Anyone know what I'm talking about here? Or you put your hands up. Shame on you. <laughs> uh, it was a music sharing service before the likes of Spotify, a peer-to-peer sharing service where you could basically share all of your music library with everyone else. So completely illegal. It's just, here's all the music I've bought. You have it for free. And so I had a vast music, very eclectic music library. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I, I tried to find my identity in the music I listened to and the people that I hang out with, the kind of gigs that I went to, the clothes that I wore. Um, but nothing was satisfying. I had no direction in my life. I had no sense of purpose. I had no sense of why. Why? I, I was probably quite um, nihilistic, fatalistic kind of in my philosophy and out- outlook on life. Um, and then, Jesus. And then friends who witnessed to me, shared the truth of who Jesus is and what he had done for me, uh, despite m- many times me telling them where they could go and where they could stick their religion, they kept loving me well, and Jesus revealed himself to me through just a prayer. I just prayed one prayer, and I had a spiritual experience of the love of God that changed my life. It completely radically changed my life. And I had such a sense of this wonderful person, Jesus, and this new life that he was giving me and offering me, that I was like, everything of the old, you take it. You say you want it, it's yours. I don't want anything to do with it because I've tasted that and it is ash in my mouth. I've tasted and seen the goodness of God and it is sweet and delicious and fulfilling. I want more of that. And so the early days of my Christian experience were filled with sweet surrender. I remember going through my music library and, uh, and immediately just going through and deleting all of this really heavy, like kind of death metal stuff. I uh, deleted that. Uh, then I went through a few days later and was like, actually, I'll, I'll delete all the stuff that's got swearing in and all that kind of thing. Deleted all of that. Another couple of weeks went by and I went through, I liked a lot of ska music. So I went through that and deleted all the stuff that had to do with sort of like marijuana and drug culture. And I deleted all of that. 
A few weeks went by and I find myself this conviction on me of like, oh, I'm listening to this artist and though the song is maybe okay in its content, there's nothing that sounds wrong in the lyrics, there's something about the artist that makes me go, mm, I'm not sure this is great, so I deleted all of that. Of course, it wasn't very long before I realized it's all illegal anyway, so I deleted all of it. And it was costly to me, because for the first time in my life, I had to buy a physical CD with actual money. Um, and uh, I found the clothes that I was wearing would, would change. And a, a lot of the, uh, I was gonna say, the black t-shirt I was wearing, uh, that happened to say a voodoo junkie on it and stuff. I was like, that's not a thing I want to relate to. And generally, you'll, if, you, if you see me often, you'll notice I tend to wear very plain clothes because I want to identify myself with, with Jesus. He's the logo of my life. Not anyone else, not any brand, not a band, not anything else, because it represents something you might you stick a band on your T-shirt. I'm not saying it's sin. But for me, I was like... Jesus, I just don't want anyone to look at me and think anything of, oh, he's that kind of person, he's that kind of, I just want them to think he's a Jesus kind of person. And so my whole life started to change. I was, uh, I was drinking a cider in the park with a friend. Remember, drink hadn't had an entirely positive place in my life. And we weren't getting drunk or anything, although that was my experience. Generally, drinking was just to get drunk. Um, but we were just having a drink in the park. And, uh, and I just felt the Holy Spirit so gently, wonderfully whisper to me this invitation to just stop drinking. And I knew it was going to be for my life. That was 19 years ago, and I've not drunk since. And I poured it out in the park. hope no one sat there later. But I just poured it out on the grass and, and threw the can away in a bin. And that was it. That was, that was the end. It was this full of submission. I remember one time in a prayer meeting... Um, I'd recently, a little while ago, I'd had my eyebrow pierced, I had my ears pierced and stretched, I had flesh tunnels in my ears, you know, big heart, I had, uh, had dreadlocks, you know, down to my bum, and, and, and I had this sense, though I'd submitted the hair, the dreadlocks thing to God, and I said, God, I'm not going to do that if that's not you, because my body is not my own, I've been bought with a price, you're mine, and I am yours, so um, it's yours, my hair is yours, but this piercing thing I hadn't submitted, this was a looking for identity, looking for something to make me more interesting, more cool. I think there's also something a little bit addictive in piercings and tattoos and things like that. And uh, it was something I was aware of. And I felt God say to me, Colin, I want you to take out all your piercings. Again, I'm not saying piercings are wrong or evil. They're even in the Bible. Women with nose piercings is a beautiful thing and all that kind of stuff. It's okay. I'm not saying it's sin. For me, it was pierced. My heart was pierced. And, uh, and God was saying to me, take out the physical piercings because really I want you to take the piercings out of your heart. And, uh, and I went, no, that's not really God. That's fine. You know, God, I know loads of people with piercings and they pray all the time. It's not a problem. That's not God. It was the scariest moment of my life because it felt like the heavens shut, boom, like that. And suddenly I was aware of the absence of the Father. And I believe in his grace, he allowed me to experience that in a moment. And it was terrifying <laughs> and I ah, take them out take them out as quick as I can threw them on the stage at the front of, of, of the of the room I was in it was a youth room youth service ran to the front got on my knees said Jesus forgive me let my let my, my yes be immediate I'm sorry they're yours but with it came such a release such a freedom it wasn't like oh my my eyebrows never going to be the same again it's so naked without my piercing no it was freeing to me and I'm sure many of you can relate, right? Especially in those early days when we just have that first love of Jesus where we just count everything else of loss. Anyone else with me there? You're just like, wow, he, you're just blown away. He's just so wonderful. Anyone else with me? Yeah. He's pretty good, right? 
We want to we go on a journey to identify with some other people in the Bible who identify with this, who recognise the goodness of God to such an extent that it changed not just their lives, but their entire society. We're starting, Pastor Clive mentioned it last week, a series on the book of Ephesians. It's one of my favourite books in the Bible. Um, it's fantastic. Should we start by just turning there, if you want to turn there in your Bible? I learned this from, uh, from my pastor in my church in Kingston, where I got saved. Um, he was trained by, um, in the, sort of the Elim ministry, so if you think this sounds crazy, then you can blame them. But he said, do you remember, you know how to memorise the epistles in order? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippines, A-E-I-O-U. A-Galatians. A-E-Ephesians, A-E-I-Philippians, A-E-I-O, Colossians, A-E-I-O-U, Thessalonians. It works perfectly. <laughs> Thessalonians, by the way, isn't spelt with a U. But hey, I, do you know what? To, that, to this day, I've always, I've always remembered it. So Ephesians, A-E, Galatians, Ephesians, that's where it is. And we're going to look at chapter one. And we want to go through these verses line by line. Now, I don't think I'm the best Bible teacher in the world. I wish right now you had Timothy Keller in front of you, or you had Andrew Sainsbury, or you had Dave, um, Dave Hellier, just who these wonderful, just so good at getting to the heart of the word and just putting it out there. But I, I'm just asking Holy Spirit right now that you would do that. Help us get hold of your word, of the word of God, and let it pierce our hearts. Let it bring our hearts to life, fresh life of Jesus this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Help me, help me, Holy Spirit. So we're going to do a bit of Bible study line by line and go through that, but we also want to go through context. Um, who were the people that the Apostle Paul was writing to? The Apostle Paul, by the way, was somebody who, though he didn't see Jesus in the flesh after Jesus died, he appeared to the Apostle Paul um, and kind of told him all about who he was. Apostle Paul gets m just amazingly, wonderfully, radically saved, turns his whole life around, and he is then the one who, who Jesus sends as a missionary around all of this part of the world. And he sees churches planted everywhere. He wrote most of our New Testament that we read today, and he's writing these letters to these different churches. So we want to get to know the people he's writing to. What was life like for them? And this will help us understand what God was trying to say to them and therefore what he might want to say to us. Now, let's paint a picture of Ephesus. Ephesus, the word Ephesus means desirable and Ephesus would have been a very desirable place to live. It was one of the jewels of the, the kind of the Middle East at that time. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, about 250,000 people. To help give context, because that's a number I can't get my head around, that's about the size of Plymouth. Um, it was a beautiful city and wonderful architecture. It's now ruins today, but it's still a massive tourist attraction because it's just such a beautiful place to go and see. Um, it was a city of culture and ethnically diverse, being a port city in what is modern day Turkey. Um, if your geography is not very good like me, you kind of got the leg of Italy, you know, the boot at the bottom kicking things, and then you've got Greece, the next sticky out bit. The next sticky out bit's Turkey. Um, and that's where uh, Ephesians was, right on the coast. It was a very wealthy city, being a port, um, trade going on, and, and both really good land routes. So it was also a city dedicated to the goddess Diana, um, or uh, as, as known in the Greek, Artemis. And she was the goddess of fertility. 
And so this city, the worship of Diana was a daily thing. This was not just a once in a while, oh, I, I, yeah, I need a baby, I'll go to Diana. This was a daily ritualistic thing. And as the goddess of, of both hunting and fertility, some of the worship involved um, sex acts and perversity and all sorts of things. And this was commonplace in the city. It was also a city who was finding itself fascinated by this new craze of magicians, magic, astrology and occultism. And this quite dark city, certainly in terms of, of the gospel, this was where God called Paul, or one of the places God called Paul. Paul actually went to Ephesus twice. Uh, the first was a short trip in about AD 52, and he took a couple of friends with him, Aquila and Priscilla. He, they did a bit of preaching and things, but then he left them there to set up a base, um, and he moved on with the next part of, of his mission. It was two years later that Paul came back in AD 54, and he moved into Ephesus. He stayed there actually longer than he stayed in any other place. He was planting churches for about two years and three months. And he was preaching and teaching daily. He actually, I think this is a fascinating insight into the life of the Apostle Paul. Um, we, we know um, that he probably spent the mornings, life started in Ephesus about 7 a.m. in the cool part of the day. He was probably making and selling tents. That was his trade in the morning to provide for himself and his other missionaries and the people he was traveling with. And then in the afternoon, he hired a local lecture hall where he would preach and teach the truth about who Jesus is. And it works. I mean, it, it seriously works. So this place that you think the last place where you would see revival, the last place you would see the life of God break out is literally the capital of occultism in the ancient world around this, these parts. And this is where the light of who Jesus is breaks out. In the darkest, that is where light shines brightest, doesn't it? And people repent. They come and they turn away from their witchcraft and their idolatry and they so completely surrender their lives to Jesus. And God does these amazing miracles in Ephesus. Paul, it says that handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his body, people would touch them and take them and lay them on the sick and the sick would be healed. I, I don't know if you've seen this. I remember with, the, um, with Pastor Paul in the Crawley congregation, years ago, if there was a sick person, sometimes we would pray over like a handkerchief or something like that and that it would be taken to the person and put under their pillow. And, and we would see people healed. And it was amazing to be part of and also, But I don't think that's what was happening here. Such was the faith of people of, I want to take hold of this power of God that I see at work, that Paul finishes his lecture and, <laughs> oh, excuse me, sorry, oh, allergies, you know, and chucks his handkerchief in the bin. Afterwards, people come and they pick it up and they're like, if I touch this, I will be healed. Such was this faith response that was, was just spreading through the people in Ephesus. We see in the Bible one of the greatest revivals that we read about. Witchcraft is driven out. Pagan sex rites and rituals cease. Diana's temple is emptied. The Bible tells us that the word of Lord, this is all in, around Acts 19, by the way, the word of the Lord spreads widely and in such great power that every person, it says, every person, both Jew and Gentile, in the whole area, an area about 1.7 times the size of the UK, ends up hearing the gospel. Because people were hearing it, getting saved and going and telling others about this transforming power of Jesus. 
So powerful was this transformative power of Jesus that um, business owners started to lose their business because they could no longer make the idols and the silver trinkets that people were buying in the temples and they were losing money. So they get together a mob and they end up actually driving Paul out of Ephesus. But despite this, the church continues to grow and prosper. Um, Paul stays in contact with the church leaders from afar in Ephesus and, uh, and around AD 61, so a few years later, he writes his letter or his epistle uh, or as we call it, the book of Ephesians to the Ephesian church. He wrote that, by the way, while being a prisoner in Rome. He'd been arrested for sharing the gospel. Now, last year, we did a whole series on the book of Romans. And Romans is so interesting because at the time, it was before he arrested, Paul had never been to Rome. And so what he's writing to these people he's never met is this amazing, rich, um, theology and doctrine that's followed by exposition. He's unpacking it all because he goes, I don't know what you know and what you don't know. So here it's all is on a plate. And so it's a wonderful book to study to, to help us understand some real foundational truths about the gospel. But in Ephesus it was different. Paul had been there for two years teaching every day. They knew what he was teaching. They knew the gospel. They knew who they were in Christ. And so in, in the book of Ephesians, what we get is line after line after line of incredibly rich, beautiful doctrine and theology about who Jesus is, what he has done and who he has made us to be which on the one hand is fantastic to teach because there's so much you could teach. On the other hand, it's incredibly difficult to teach because there's so much to teach. And so uh, I'm sorry that you're going to have to bear with, with me, but um, this is the kind of thing where we want to just go through this line by line and just really mull over it, soap it. You know, we talk about that scripture, observation, application, prayer. Let it, like, let our minds marinate in this like, you know, a good curried lamb. Like, let it really sink in there. This is also, interestingly, the epistle to, uh, to the Ephesians is the only letter that doesn't contain correction. Uh, they were obviously being careful to live out what Paul was saying. And, uh, and unlike the church in Corinth, by the way, as an aside, Paul wrote the letters to the Corinthian church while here in Ephesus, while he was in Ephesus for those two years, um, which is really interesting because he was in the, the capital of witchcraft in Ephesus, and he writes the Corinthians about spiritual warfare. He's, he's explaining the importance of spiritual warfare while doing it himself in Ephesus. And we're going to come on to that later in the book. But um, he wasn't writing to the Ephesians out of correction of, you've got this wrong, we need to line it up. He was writing to the Ephesians to build them up, to encourage them, to say, don't forget, you're doing so well. Keep going. You've hated sin. You've turned from it. Keep going. And so that is what he wants to say to us, what God wants to say to us. And why we're looking at Ephesians is because God wants us built up and encouraged over this season. Anyone want to say amen to that? <laughs> encouragement, by the way, is not for the failing Christian. Encouragement is for all of us. The word encourage comes from to give courage to. Anyone want to be more courageous in sharing the gospel? Yeah. Every Christian, right? Not just the failing ones. Every Christian, we need encouragement. We need to encourage one another, build one another up in our, in our most holy faith. Amen? And this is what God wants to do. So this is not a fire and brimstone series. This is a guys, let us feast on who Jesus is series. So are you ready? Anyone rumbly bellies this morning? Not because of the fasting, but spiritually. Let's, let's just get into the word and, uh, and be filled. Amen? Now, remember... 
Um, Ephesians, the Ephesus was completely changed. It was completely changed. And it started with this submission. This revival that broke out started with this surrendering everything. It actually says that the, uh, the, the people who are practicing occult and witchcraft and things like that, they brought their scrolls, their paraphernalia together and they burnt them. And it says, if we read through, we'll get there in just a minute, but it says that if we added up in today's money, it would be about five million pounds worth. It was costly. It was costly. But to them, it was nothing. As we go through Ephesians, to give a bit of an overview, the first part of Ephesians is really all about what has God done? Who are we in Christ? What's Jesus done for us? The second part is about how we live it out. It's a really practical book. It's a wonderfully practical book. And uh, so we're starting with chapter 1, verse 1. Let's have a look. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now here is where it just gets amazing. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There was, there was, I, I thought there was a distinct lack of hallelujahs, amens, and wow, isn't that amazing? I know, it's really, really hot, but let me just read that again. Praise be to the God and our Father of Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, all of us, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I mean, I mean, let's just, we just, this was, I was just sat there like, Jesus, I read this a hundred times, but like, get that in my head. I am blessed with every spiritual blessing that is in Christ. And we could just stop there, right? Done. <laughs> let's go home and just reflect on that. What would happen if we got our heads around this? If we really knew it in our heart of hearts? Back in May, um, we, we looked at our series on materialism and stuff and tithing and all those kind of things. We looked at the word makarios or blessed, what it means to be blessed. This is actually a little bit of a different word. It's not that word, that happy, fulfilled, balanced, harmonious, fortunate word. This is this blessing. It's actually where we get the, the word eulogy from, to speak well of, to speak praise of. But it also means a gift or bounty or benefit. So every spiritual blessing in every placings is every benefit that we could possibly have, every bounty, every gift spiritually that God has is ours already in Christ. Already. Now, these are not temporal earthly blessings. This is not what this is talking about in this context, like wealth or prosperity, long life, health. Um, now, some of us, praise God, get to experience those things. There are others who don't. Who knows that a poor, impoverished Christian who's, uh, who's imprisoned and been beaten and has ill health from, from being starved and in his prison is no less blessed with every spiritual blessing that, than we are. We might on the surface go, well, they're not blessed with the freedom that we have. And those things are true. We, we, we praise God for those blessings. But this is a far more important and far better blessing. These are not temporal. These are eternal blessings and truths. These are the best blessings God could possibly ever give us. And perhaps we don't recognize just how amazing this is. Maybe, maybe when I read that, let's, let's try it again. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Amen. Amen. It's getting better. It's getting better. Maybe the reason we don't jump to our feet and go, wow, Jesus, thank you, is because of its ubiquity. This is for every Christian. And so if it's for every Christian, well, it's not that special, right? Is that perhaps what we start to think? Because this is the most special thing in, in the, on the planet. Let's put it another way. Let's say we all knew this. Let's say God came down one day and all the TV cameras in the world and all the news feeds in the world, or I don't know how we do it, in pictures in our head, we all knew this would be true. And he went, Steffi, you alone among all creation, you will be the one upon whom I bestow every spiritual blessing. Nobody else gets it. And signs off. We would be like, I want to be Steffi. What, what, why did she get that? I want that. Do you know what I mean? If we realised that if, if the rarity of this, I think we would probably grasp just how incredibly important and how wonderful it is. But it's not just for Steffi. It is for Steffi. Don't worry, Steffi. It is for you. But it's for every single one of us. Every one of us. We have all that is at Jesus' disposal to give. We have all that is at Jesus' disposal to give. You have all that is at Jesus' disposal to give. Let's just let that sink in. Again, let's just marinate in that for a second. Maybe say it to yourself. I have all that is at Jesus' disposal to give. And everything is his. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I think the trouble for most of us is that, is that so often we try to ask God to do what he's already done. Somebody sent me this Christian meme the other day. I thought this was kind of quite funny and quite apt. Can we put this one up? When the Holy Spirit is giving you everything you need to succeed, but you still to try to do it alone. He's wearing a cap and he's got sunglasses and he's still doing this, he's still squinting into the sun. I was like, yeah, that's, that's so true. Jesus, forgive me when that's me. And when I say, Jesus... I need peace. This situation is really difficult. Would you please give me peace? Rather than remembering, I have peace. Jesus said, I give you my peace. My peace, I have leave with you. Not I'm going to take away again. I leave with you. And not as the world gives do I give. So do not let your heart be troubled and not let it be afraid. And I'm going, Jesus, please, I just need you to give me some peace. Rather than going, thank you, Jesus. I have peace. I don't have to worry about this. What about I need grace for this situation? This, this situation is so difficult. Jesus, I need grace. By the way, this is not, uh, I'm not pointing fingers saying, oh, you, you weak-willed little faith Christians, you do this and I don't. I do this too. We all do this, don't we, at times? Where we go, Jesus, I just need more of your grace. Rather than we're remembering, he has given me infinite, immeasurable, lavished upon me grace that is sufficient for every situation. What about wisdom? Yep, check. That's us too. What else is there that we could possibly need? He has given it. Because everything at his disposal to give, he has given it. I, I gave her an example uh, a little while ago. I brought in my can of shed paint. Do you remember? And I said, I I've got this big can of shed paint and my shed really needs painting. If my shed needs painting, what am I not going to do? What's not going to help is to say, I need more paint. More paint is not going to get the shed painted. I have all the paint that I need. What's going to get the shed painted is opening up and applying the paint. By the way, I still haven't painted that shed. Um, <laughs> but spiritually, having 50 cans of paint 
is not going to get the shed painted. We don't need to ask for more paint. Jesus has given us all. And I'm really, I feel like I'm really stressing this, this really strong because this is so fundamentally important. And, and yeah, I wish there was a, a Timothy Keller here to just help just say this in a way that we get it. But Holy Spirit, would you do that, that we would get this? Often I think we spend too much time thinking about or focusing on the problem or the lack or what we don't have rather than what we already do. Bill Johnson put it this way. I thought this was fantastic. Someone sent me this recently. He said, how many of you here, and I'm going to ask you this question, how many of you here have ever had a problem going in your life and it was so disturbing to you that you just couldn't sleep at night? Anyone here? That's me. Anyone? Anyone else? It just kept you awake at night, just thoughts going round and round your head. Yeah? So a, a lot of us. So we know, he says, we know that you know how to meditate. Now we just need to change the subject matter. And I thought, that is so good. How many times am I keeping me up at night? And I'm just thinking, what am I going to say about that? How am I going to solve that? What are we going to do? Maybe if I move the money from that account to that, or we pull hold back on that, what am I going to say to them because they're really angry at me? Or how am I going to fix that situation? Meditating. Meditative, in the Hebrew, the word haga means to mutter. We're almost muttering over ourselves, soaking ourselves in the problem, trying to sort it out. Rather than going, hold on, Jesus, you say that I can give all of my concerns over to you because your shoulders are big enough for them. You will, are trustworthy and faithful to see those things through. So I, I hand them over to you and trust them to you. And I thank you, I have peace. I thank you, I have the one who is the mediator. I have the one who is the solution. And focus and to meditate. And all night long, as it says in the Bible, in my bed when I lie down, I think of you, it says in the Psalms. Meditate, mutter over your goodness, your goodness. You're so good, you're so good. By the way, if there is any, any sense of oh, no condemnation here whatsoever, any conviction of the Holy Spirit, like, hey, this is you, then the Holy Spirit is prodding me too, going, Colin, I so want to draw you into the truth of who you are in Christ and out of your insecurities and your issues and into a place of such security in me that you don't worry. It doesn't even have a glimmer of anxiety in the corner of your mind because your mind is so filled with this renewed mind, who you are in Christ. What would happen if in any given circumstance we focused on who Jesus is, what he's given us and who he's made us to be rather than our problems, lacks, insecurities or circumstances? What if that, if it was him that we thought about and dwelt upon? And I, I know some of you guys, you are mature and you do this and you live this. Help the rest of us who are growing in this, please. We looked in the summer at the power of the word, a family service over the summer and applying the word rather than focusing on the problem or confessing the problem or the lack of the lie the, the devil might be throwing us. We confess the word. We meditate on the word. Know the truth, Jesus says, and the truth shall set you free. Remember, Paul was teaching in this local lecture hall in Ephesus. He started off in a synagogue, and after three months, people started hurling abuse at him and, and at the followers of the way, the Christians. And so he moved out of there, and he went to a secular uh, hall, which he hired. And we know from um, uh, ancient sources and things that he hired that from 11 till 4 each day. So tent making and selling in the morning, lecturing from 11 till 4 each day during a Ephesus's siesta time. Most people are doing their gardening or having a nap or getting ready for the evening or whatever. Paul is preaching. He's preaching for five hours a day, five days a week for two years. That's 2,600 hours of the Apostle Paul teaching. Anyone else wish they were in that lecture hall? For what? 2,600 hours of the Apostle Paul. No wonder Ephesus experienced revival. The word works. 
God's word will not return void. Getting in the word works. Now, no one expected that city, that uh, city of occult, the capital of occultism, uh, beware, revival would break out. It was a a city renowned for its its perverse sex acts and its hedonism, but also not in the same way Corinth was, but in this almost like its intellectual hedonism. We know everything. We've got all the answers. Uh, That was the, the place God called Paul to and the word to. And yet, it's where God's word broke out. So impactful, again, that it changed the local businesses. It changed on a societal level, a cultural level. It's like the 1904 Welsh revival when pubs closed and shut down because everyone stopped drinking because they were drinking in Jesus and they weren't going to the pub to get drunk and and wipe out their memories from a week of slavish labour in the mines. This, if this truth, this power of Jesus can change Ephesus, this dark place, it can certainly change you and me and our town. Amen? What are the altars and the temples that people sacrifice at and worship in today in, in our society? What are the gods of our province that we prostrate ourselves before? Because we have them. It might not be gold, you know, silver trinkets and idols in our homes, uh, and, it, and, it, and it might not be at a local temple, but our politics, mm-hmm. our celebrity culture, um, our stomachs maybe, or our, our intellectualism, much like in Ephesus, or our greed or our desire for more, or our own comfort perhaps, become idols. Or, or maybe if we think of idols as the things to which we go to try and find help in a time of need, um, in the same way that God, Diana, the goddess of fertility, you'd go to, I want to get pregnant, you go to Diana. Maybe we have a problem, I want to feel better, so we go to the idol of pornography. That was part of my story. Or maybe the idol of uh, drunkenness or partying or whatever it might be, or just slobbing out or just switching our brains off as we scroll through, the, like death scrolling our way through social media or YouTube. Again, I'm not saying any of those things are evil. Drinking is not evil in of itself. Money is not evil in itself, but the love of those things yeah. makes them an idol. That's right. And we want to see these things torn down. Amen? absolutely destroyed in the same way that that there will be riots breaking out. I want to see riots breaking out in the pornography industry as as men and women especially get saved and their lives so radically turned around that they go, I'm not going to turn to that to look for or OnlyFans or whatever to turn to a thing to try and provide money or well-being or anything like that. But they leave it behind where... The, the, the thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of clicks per second at the biggest um, porn website in the world would diminish to the point where they are losing money, hemorrhaging cash, because of the transformative power and purity in Jesus. I don't know if we'll see that before Jesus comes back. There's a reason that he has to come back. But man, I believe that Jesus can transform lives to that point. Thank you, Jesus. You start in us. Our, the altars in our hearts come crashing down. What would it look like if we really grasped and more shared the truth that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing? We don't need to look for anything else to be blessed. I need to know that. Jesus, I need to know that in the depths of my being. There is no fulfillment in anything else anyway. In nothing else. All is in Christ. Christ is gain. Everything else is loss. 
Paul said, I consider everything else, everything else, rubbish. Actually, the word he used was, was like filth, or it's used for refuse, but it's also used for, for, um, for excrement. Everything else is just it's like the poo of the world compared to knowing Jesus. <laughs> now, remember the context of this. Paul wants to build up and encourage and strengthen uh, the believers in Ephesus, and, and this is how to do it. He reminds them of the truth of how wonderful Jesus is. He brings their focus to who they are in Christ and who Christ is to them. And I I hope that's what's happening this morning. The Holy Spirit is bringing our focus to Jesus. You're amazing. You're wonderful. What you have done for me, what you can do in our town. And over the next 15 verses or so, Paul unpacks what some of these amazing spiritual blessings are. So let's, let's look at some of them now. Verse four to five. You want to read along in your Bible. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and goodwill. Let's look at that word chose. He chose us. This is not a Henry Ford Model T kind of choice. Customers can have any color they like as long as it's black. You know, this is, he could literally, he's God, right? He could choose no one. We could not criticize him for choosing no one to pour out his goodness on. I mean, is there anyone who deserves it? He could choose no one, or he could choose just the best. He could choose only the ones that would never fail him, never make a mistake, love him perfectly, but he doesn't. He chose, not landed with, not strong-armed into, not inherited, not best of a bad bunch, but chose. And it says even delightedly, with great pleasure, with pleasure, he chose you and me. This, and and he says he chose us in love. Now, he's the God who is love. This is his motivation for everything, remember. His choice of you is because he has first loved you before you even did anything. And now this is amazing. He's the God who is the God who knows everything from beginning to end, right? So he knew every time that we would fail him. He knew every time that you would hit snooze and roll over and not have that quiet time in the morning. He knew every time that you would lose your temper and get angry and not be gracious with your brother or sister. He knew every time that you would, that hidden sin, that secret sin, that you would fail him. Every time where you would express a lack of love, a lack of concern for another, every failure, he already knew and he said, still I choose you. Before you've ever made any mistakes, I've chosen you. And I have chosen you in love, and you're still my good pleasure. It pleases me. Isn't it so amazing to know that nothing you could ever do could put you beyond the reach of his love? Because he knew all the failure and yet chose you before earth existed anyway. He chose us to be holy and blameless. He did it... um, to make us blameless. That's the blood of Jesus. We come on to the next verse. He's made us blameless, but who knows? I'm not blameless. In fact, the Bible says, if anyone claims he has no sin, he's a liar. The truth is not in him. So I know I've been made free. I'm no longer a sinner, but I still sin. And the theological word we've talked about this before is eschatological realism, that I have been made pure and I will be made pure. It talks about this in Hebrews. He has already made perfect those he is making holy. How can I be perfect and made holy? This is these two things together. So this grace, this wonderful, amazing grace, I know every mistake that you've ever made, and yet I still love you. doesn't mean we go, oh, brilliant, I'll make all the mistakes I like. He still loves me anyway. This grace turns us to his goodness. 
He's made us blameless and it causes us to Jesus say, I want to live blameless. I want to live as you've called me to be because I've tasted its goodness. It is all a work of his grace, which means unmerited, undeserved favour. I like the acronym. It's not in the Bible. It's not even in English, but it makes sense, doesn't it? It's great to remember. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Every blessing, every richness is ours. Let's move on. Verse 6, to the praise and uh, praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. That's in Jesus. There is nothing deserving in us that caused him to choose us. In fact, it says a lot less about us and a lot more about him. His goodness, his wonderful patience and kindness, his mercy. Next verse, in him we have redemption through his blood the blood of the one that that the Father loves in Jesus, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished upon us, lavishly, more than enough, abundantly, flowing over, is who he has made us to be. The blood of Jesus washed us away clean. And this is the gospel, right? This is the heart of it. It is all in Jesus. It's because of Jesus. It is all through Jesus and by Jesus. His death that we deserve. My sin deserves death. I know it full well. My sin deserved death, and Jesus died in my place. Let's look at the next verses. We're going to speed through these next few. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. He's given us purpose. He's given us a hope and a future to be called to, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment and the end of days, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Ephesus was a little picture of that. Jesus wants to bring all things, not just a few people, but all things, society, culture, architecture, arts, um, philosophy, all of it to be renewed like a wonderful new garden of Eden, which is in fact what one day the earth will be, this garden city, the new heaven and the new earth, this beauty. And in Ephesus, that was what changed. Society started to change. And this is God's great master plan that we're to be agents of that change, to experience it ourselves for now as a taste of what's to come. Now, we read about this, this word in here, hope. We first put our hope in Christ. In English, the word hope is naturally uncertain. It's built into it. If I say, I hope my team wins, there is no certainty in that. If I did, I would be a millionaire through the bets that I would put on it. Because it's not a bet if it's a certainty. The reason it's called a bet is because it's a hope in English. It's hope. It is an inbuilt uncertainty in the word hope in English. This is not the word in the Bible. We don't actually have a good translation, why it's why it's translated. Hope, hope's the best approximation. But the word hope in the Bible is a fixed certainty of what, you can, what is to come. Psalm 136, uh, 130 verse 6 expresses this really well. I wait for the Lord to help me more than the night watchman wait for the dawn. If you're a night watchman, are you going to say, oh, I hope my shift is over when the sun comes up. I hope the sun will come up at some point, as though maybe it will, maybe it won't. We know it will. We know my shift will be over because we know the sun is coming up. In the same way, I know my hope that my God will help me is certain. It is true. We're going to look more about this, uh, this hope coming up later. But our hope we have in Christ is not vain or shaking. It is unshakable. It is a certain promise for the future. Let's pick up here at verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Gospel means good news, the good news of your salvation. 
When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, the praise of his glory. We have been bought with a price. This speaks of worth. If something has a price, it has value, intrinsic. It has worth. This is how valuable God sees you. I don't know who here needs to hear this. I need to hear this. Maybe we all need to hear this. Paul says it to all of them. Probably we all need to hear this. But maybe you're here this morning. You particularly need to hear this or you're watching online. A deposit is a fraction of the value of the final bill to be paid. It's a down payment. So if the value or the down payment, the deposit that God has given for us is himself in his Holy Spirit, how much more wonderful is the final payment, if you like, of what's to come, the final experience that he's inviting us into? If it speaks of our worth, his down payment, he goes, wow, you guys, I don't want anyone else to have you. I want you for myself. So I'm going to put a deposit down so no one else can have you. What I'm willing to pay, my deposit, my fraction of what is to come, is all of myself. What does that speak of your value and your worth to him? We, we think of that in terms of the blood of Jesus. God gave his son, Jesus, and so that speaks of worth. But this is just another picture of the worth that God has seen in us, not in who we are, not Jesus looks at me and goes, wow, Colin, that he's so valuable because of this and this in him, but because of his character, because of his love that is so giving. Think of that first love experience of coming to know God. You're forgiven, made new, have relationship with him. You know, true joy, peace, freedom, all of that wonderful stuff. That is just the deposit. There is more to come. And thinking of what's to come, we've already seen how it's the Father's good pleasure to choose us. Do you ever think about how he will react when he gets to welcome us into his heavenly kingdom? We don't see him face to face now in that way, but one day we will. Psalm 16 says, in your face is joy upon joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. C.S. Lewis, that great theologian, he, he wrote this. If we let him, God, if we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, in a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. This is what we are in for, nothing less. Wow. You make a deposit to secure the thing that you want to buy, but it's also a commitment to buy it. The Father has committed to us. He will see it through to the end. He will never leave you or forsake you, never abandon you. A deposit also secures your purchase. No one else can buy it if you've put a deposit down on it. It guarantees us for him. If someone pays a deposit, it's yours. The devil cannot have you because the Holy Spirit is the deposit that God has put down for you. The devil cannot have you. These are the truths that Paul seeks to encourage and build up the, the Ephesians with. They're probably the same truths that he was teaching on, which is why they're so packed with little explanation because it was reminding, this is what I taught you when I was with you. And what is the result? Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. This is Acts chapter 19, verses 18 to 19. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total comes to 50,000 drachmas or about 5 million pounds. The revelation of who Jesus is and what he'd done brings with it the revelation that the things that we thought before would have brought us freedom are in fact chains that bind us. 
These, these guys who are looking to Diana to bring them fertility, they suddenly realize these were the chains that were binding them. We read that it caused people to confess their sin. They cried out to God and they confessed their sin openly, what they had done. We've heard stories from Pastor Colin of in times of revival and people in the room just calling out their sins and confessing their sins because they didn't want anything getting between them and what God was doing. In, in pure desire groups, in both the men's and women's groups, I've been involved in the men's ones, as I'm sure you can imagine, seeing guys come around the truth and being able to say, I've never told anyone this before, but, and then confessing their sin and seeing burdens lifted and broken and shame shattered and seeing the truth and life and joy and freedom that Jesus brings come and flood a soul is one of the greatest privileges I ever have as a pastor. It is wonderful and we need it. We need to confess our sins one to another that we would pray for one another and be healed, it says. It caused people to turn from their occult paraphernalia and burn stuff, throw it in the fire. It's not worth it. Take out your piercings, tip your cider out in the grass, leave it behind. Sarah, I've put it in here to mention it. She's already mentioned it. When, when Dave, moved by the Spirit, came and shared on Wednesday night about David Wilkerson, being uh, that, that, that um, missionary to um, the cities of New York, dissatisfied with his own Christian experience of not seeing God do much, says on February 9th, 1958, Pastor David decided to sell his television set. Instead of watching the late shows for two hours each night, he would spend the time in prayer. He went on to see revival amongst the gangs of New York City. As we go through Ephesians, God wants to encourage us and build us up. You can't build on a sandy foundation. That's why it starts with fresh surrender. But I want to remind us, this is not, that is not a, so you better surrender or you miss out. It is not that. Please do not leave any room for the enemy to whisper that in your ear. This is an invitation from Jesus. Come, come and see what I will do. In that moment of tipping out my cider, and there's been many other moments in my life where I've thought, if I get rid of this, I'm losing my crutch. I'm losing the thing that makes me feel better in the moment. I will not now have any idea how to make myself feel better in the moment. I'm going to have to learn a whole new way of living. This is going to be costly and painful to me. Do I really want to do it? Do I really want to confess these sins? Because then I've got to stop. Do I really want to change? And that's painful and uncomfortable. And at that moment of tipping it, and, just, and, and I think the further away we are from knowing that goodness of Jesus and trusting he was only going to give us something that's good for us anyway, that I start to think maybe I can trust more in this can than I can in the goodness of my father. And I hesitate. And that's the moment we need his grace. We can't improve ourselves in our own self-effort, but we say, Jesus, thank you. Every blessing in Christ is mine. Thank you that you have already given me the enabling grace to say yes to what you're inviting me into and we tip it. And do you know what? What comes with it is not, no, 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 what am I doing? All those things I just said. What am I, I'm not going to have my crutch to lean on anymore. This is the worst I did. Do you know what comes with it? Wow, what lies those were, I was just thinking. I don't need this thing. And freedom comes not just in the moment, but it creates then the opportunity for the healing then to take place, for us to then learn how to rely on and trust in our Heavenly Father and not in this, this shallow, and uh, an imperfect imitation. Surrender is like pulling a poisonous arrow out of our flesh. It might seem painful in the moment, but this moment it comes out, we realize the venom is gone, the pain is leaving, and healing is now taking place. Comes with it relief, 
not dissatisfaction. It might seem costly, like five million pounds worth of scrolls, but it is so worthwhile. And Jesus gives us the grace to do it. When I first came to Christ, I was so willing to do that. Is it harder today? Is it as we go on further? Just like the Ephesians, Jesus said of the Ephesians church in Revelation, you've, lost, you've forgotten your first love. It's like all these things are great about you and, and you're brilliant, but you've forgotten your first love. Do we sometimes forget that initial passion for Jesus and we start to hold on more to our distractions and our comforts than we do Jesus, not realising those distractions and comforts are actually discomfort? They're actually uncomfortable to our spirit and to our, and to our lives and our moving on with Jesus? I asked the question earlier, what would it look like if we got our head around the fact we are already blessed with every spiritual blessing? We have everything that we need. In Ephesus, it meant burning witchcrafts, paraphernalia and all that kind of thing and a changing around of wonderful, wonderfully lives. What might we have that we might need to surrender? Guys, would you mind putting those buckets out along here? It would be great. So we just, apologies, just realised it's time. We're just going to have five minutes um, before we close, bring the service to a close, just to respond in this moment, to say, Jesus, thank you. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes that moment of that hesitancy of the cans being tilt, tipped, the longer that we stand there thinking about that, meditating on that, all the things that we might lose, the harder it is to keep tilting the can. The more we focus on the goodness of Jesus and every blessing of having the heavenly places, the quicker it goes. And the more we want, I touch not what is unclean, you know? And so I didn't want to leave. I felt God say the response today is not to leave with a sense of, well, I'll go home and I'll have a think about it and God maybe give the opportunity if there's anything. Like have an immediate response right now to come and have that opportunity of Jesus. I, I hope, my prayer is, I hope that this morning through the word, you've had a picture of how loved you are by the Father, how he sees you, how precious you are to him, all that he's got for you. I truly hope and pray that that has captured your heart. And my hope and prayer is that in response, you would say, Jesus, why would I want to hold on to anything else? And so we're going to have opportunity this morning. In each of these buckets, there are, there are a bunch of pens and there are some, I'll show you, we've got some pens and some post-its. In your seat right now, just take a minute, just come before the Father and say, Father, is there anything that you've been, maybe it's that TV show you've been watching and every time you put it on, there's a little just niggly conviction and you've pushed it aside. Maybe this is time to go, Jesus, okay, I'm acknowledging that. Maybe this is time to write down the pornography I have in my home. I'm making a decision. I'm going to burn it. I'm going to throw it away when I get back. Or maybe, let's face it, we live in 2023. That means putting some, actually getting around to putting the blocks on my computer or, or whatever. Maybe it's going to be tipping out that can when I get home. Maybe it's throwing away that book. What, someone once asked if they could borrow a DVD from me and I said, I don't have it anymore. What happened to it? I think I threw it away in a fit of holiness. I, I, I was joking, but those moments of like, the spirit is on me and I just want to get rid of it. If the spirit is moving, again, there's no condemnation here. But if the Spirit is bringing this wonderful and we thank Him for it conviction, He's saying, I've got so much better for you. Let me show you the better I have. So I'll just give you a moment just to, just to talk with the Lord. Just come before Him and say, is there anything? We don't need to go digging. Is there anything? And I'm going to ask to make sure there is no one person who feels like, oh, I'm the only one who's going up. This is awkward. I'm going to ask that every one of us come forward. And you might just say, Fresh surrender, Jesus, just generally, my mind. You write something like that. It doesn't matter, but I'm going to ask every person, come forward, take one of these, write something as a commitment that Jesus, this morning, right now, I'm responding. There might be an action to follow when you get home, but right now, this is a prophetic act. This thing, 
this is done in my life. Amen? So I want to just invite you, just take that moment. You might have that thing already and, uh, and just come. If you're responding at home, maybe in your, in your home, write it down. Tell somebody right now. When you've, uh, when you've done that thing, you can tear that up. You can screw it up. You can just throw it in the bin. As this picture of that thing is done with in my life. While people are doing this, I want to also say, there's one verse we sort of skipped over. Verse 13. You were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. We talked today about all that Jesus has done for us. We don't do anything except this. You hear and you believe. If you're not a Christian, you're someone who, whether you're online or in the room, you're not someone who calls yourself a Christian. I mean, maybe you were once and you now feel like you're far from God. All we do is we hear and believe. And if there's something in your heart that's saying, I, there is a faith rising in me, I believe this, I want this, I want this relationship with Jesus who loves me and has known me and chosen me before creation of the world, then you can come and you can pick up a pen and you can just write on that post-it, me. I surrender me, all of me, to all of you. And then come and, come and talk to me after. Come and tell me. If that's you, if you've written that down, come and tell me. Thank you, Jesus. And as you're doing this, because we're going to have to finish in a minute and just go and, and, and get our kids and everything else. Before we do that, as you're doing this, as you're writing stuff and responding, let's also pray. Let's pray, Jesus, thank you for this invitation that surrender brings us into freedom, that none of these Ephesians were saying it was better when I was worshiping Diana in the temple forced into prostitution. Nobody was saying that because fresh surrender yields fresh fruit, fresh liberty, fresh freedom. Thank you, Jesus, that these things are going into these buckets. Jesus, they be cut off in Jesus' name. As Paul was practicing spiritual warfare in the name of Jesus, we do what he says. We come against every thought that raises itself up against the knowledge of God and tear it down right now in Jesus' name. I pray a release over every person in this room, over everyone watching our stream, a release afresh of strength, of life in Christ, of liberty, of freedom, of joy and peace, of right living, of his kingdom. I speak new, renewed minds, the mind of Christ that focuses on the things that are good and true and pure and noble and admirable and praiseworthy, that focuses on all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ and not on our problems, that says, thank you, Jesus. You've saved me, not just for the future, but you've saved me in the now. And in the name of Jesus, we just come against every spirit that just is hounding and dogging and just trying to pull down and nipping at your heels. In the name of Jesus, we silence that. And thank you, Jesus, for strength in knowing who we are in Christ afresh. And Jesus, as we go through the rest of Ephesians, Lord, every word would sow seed in a heart that bears much fruit, not just for us, but as it ends with Acts 19.20, as people surrender their lives in this way, the gospel spread. In this way, through surrender, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power to all people in the region heard the gospel. Amen. Jesus, let us share the gospel. Thank you for listening to this Kingdom Faith podcast. We trust it's been an encouragement to you. 
For more information and resources from Kingdom Faith and our other audio and video podcasts, please visit www.kingdomfaith.com.